It's Monday night. That's a brand new episode of Graphic Policy Radio, the show that mixes comics and politics. And we've got an interesting show tonight. We're diving deep into Marvel history with the untold story, Marvel Comics, the untold story, Sean Howe, who is our guest tonight. But before I dive into that, I want to welcome my co-host, Alana, and then welcome our special guest co-host after that. So hi, Alana. How you doing? Hey, I'm great. I, uh, you know, I think I first found out about Sean Howe's book, um, Marvel Comics, The Untold Story, because I kept seeing pieces on Tumblr um, that were just sharing amazing pieces about the Marvel's history as a, a company, not just as um, this creator of, you know, stories we loved, but like really what was happening in terms of the business and the machinations and, and how that really impacted the art. And um, ever since I saw those posts on Tumblr, I've wanted to get Sean as a guest, so I'm really happy to have him here today. Yeah. Uh, hey, the, the, oh. his, yep. <laughs> I'll introduce, introduce you, Stephen. Uh, the uh, history of comics has been really you know popular now. There's tons of different things. So this is kind of this is the OG of comic history in a way, uh, predating everyone. Uh, and joining us is the man who knows Marvel probably way better than uh, Alana and myself, uh, Stephen Adwell, who's been a multi-time guest on the show. He writes about intersection of history, politics, and pop culture at the People's History of Mirrors for Graphic Policy. His day he teaches uh, public policy at Cooney's Murphy Institute for Labor Studies, founder of Race for the Iron Throne. If you're a Game of Thrones fan, definitely check it out. Hey, Stephen, welcome to the show. Hello. How's it going? Good, good, good. Uh, and not to, to cut you off, and uh, but want to, to Sean and really dive into the stuff. Uh, in the early 60s, Marvel Comics introduced a series of broad costume superhero characters, including Iron Man, Hulk, Thor, X-Men, Fantastic Four, Daredevil, and The Amazing Spider-Man. That was evolved into the modern American mythology for millions of readers. Over the last half century, these characters have been passed along among generations of brilliant editors, artists, and writers who struggled with commercial it's a fickle audience and over matters of credit and control uh, one another. So written by Sean Howe, former comic book reviewer, editor, at Weekly, Marvel Comics, The Untold Story is a gripping narrative of one of the most extraordinary, loved, believed pop culture entities in America's history and pretty much a must-read for those interested in comic history. Welcome to the show, Sean. Hey, thanks a lot. Uh, that's, uh, that's a lot more... Uh... Uh, of an of a ego-stroking introduction that I'm used to. <laughs> Thank you very much. We're very good about that. <laughs> I'm the hype man. That's my role. I'm all about the hype man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, um, so okay, one of the questions I, I wanted yeah. to ask just to start was, you know, how did you uh, decide to begin this writing project in the first place? Yeah, um, I guess, uh, you know, I've been a, a big comics reader uh throughout my childhood and uh i kind of stepped away from it for a while um most of the 90s and i guess when i started dipping a toe back into that world uh you know it was it was the the fandom had kind of moved to the internet a little bit and uh i was finding myself just compulsively reading all of these uh, all all of these interviews with uh, the people who had worked at Marvel Comics. And it was 
a little bit different than the way that it had been portrayed um, otherwise uh, when you were hearing the creators talk um, one-on-one and not in an official history. So mm-hmm. I just sort of became uh, fascinated with that dichotomy. And uh, I was, it was kind of in the back of my mind for five, six, seven years. And I guess, you know, there was a, just a, a point at which I realized nobody else was doing it. <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, I, I, sh- I, should, I should give it a shot. May I ask, what was it that got you reading comics again? You know, I think it was it was about the time that Grant Morrison was doing X Men. I'm not sure if it happened a little bit before that, but it it had less to do with the actual comic than just uh, you know, uh, oddly, it was peer pressure from uh, a couple of my friends at. at uh, had been trying to get me to read comics again. Um, I mean, I had, I had, I had certainly been reading non-superhero stuff in the interim, um, but even then, not, uh, you know, not religiously. Um, but this was the first time that I, I looked at Marvel comics since, um, you know, the very beginning of the nineties. And uh, I think it's really interesting, you know, your, your choice to focus on Marvel Comics. I think one of the reasons you pointed that out was that uh, Marvel was the publisher for whom a lot of readers grew up thinking about Marvel, the Marvel bullpen as this mythologized thing and as a workplace that we all wanted to see ourselves in. Um, and uh, that was one of the reasons why you wanted to talk and do the book on Marvel in particular. Yeah, they they have done a really um, maybe not so much at this moment in history, but uh, but overall they've they've done a really good job of marketing it as um, kind of a a place one would want to work. <laughs> yeah, and that myth- and the mythology of the company. I mean, like you're talking about a company where they had as back as far back as like the '60s, uh, you know, what if issues that were riffing off of the specific people who were employed by Marvel comics themselves as characters in the Fantastic Four yeah. um, is, I mean, that, they were doing meta before meta was, was a thing. Um, but I, I think like, yeah, what was special was that because Marvel is such a mythologized physical place, like the offices have appeared in the comics. I don't know if DC's offices ever appeared in DC comics, to be honest. Um, that having actual like history and analysis be brought to that is well needed because a lot of the things that I think we had assumed about Marvel growing up were like literally inventions of the myth making machine. Right. Right. Uh, you know, which, which isn't to say, um, you know, they didn't invent a lot. And I, I think, um, you know, the, a lot of just the, the, storytelling structure and the way fandom exists um, with, you know, cable TV shows. Um, I, th- I think Marvel is, is um, you know, if not the absolute point of origin, I think, I think most of that can be traced back to, um, you know, the, the serial form of Marvel Comics.
This, I, I just, I'm totally going to steal this question from Stephen, but um, I think you set it up perfectly, <laughs> which is, yeah. When did it, like, you know, the whole concept of continuity uh, really came from Marvel, much more than from DC. And it, uh, it has become such, not that DC doesn't have continuity, but like Marvel began this being like a practice. Um, and with all of the crossovers, we're in the ongoing continuity and, you know, I, I definitely think it's a sort of thing, like, it's, it's a lot like New York City, right, where, like, you have layers and layers of paint on top of each other, and, uh, you mm-hmm. know, on, you have to do serious uh, excavation anytime you want to make any renovations to an apartment building, because there's, like, lead somewhere underneath there, there's asbestos, we have to remove these things, but, you know, because nobody had intended necessarily for continuity to be as layered as it is now, like, it is really challenging, Um and Stephen had basically asked, like, is this ultimately a healthy thing, or do we end up with, quote, the illusion of change, quote? And I think um, I, really, I really like that, um, the analogy to the, to the um, actual buildings. Um, but I, I think um, maybe we might be starting to see uh, a little bit of, of that uh, continuity headache, um, you know, the, the traffic jam of continuity I think might be, starting to creep into the movies a little bit. Um, I'm not, I mean, I'm, uh, this is just uh, a totally non-scientific guess, but I, th- I think probably um, it's, it's not an easy, there's no easy point of entry at this point. Um, I, I, I don't know if any of you have uh, experienced trying to indoctrinate someone into, into the mm-hmm. Marvel cinematic universe in, in, you know, the last year or anything, but um, I would, I would imagine that it's pretty daunting for, you know, any, any regular citizen off the street. I think to me is like, there's a whole genre of conversation that folks like us have around how do you bring someone into reading, you know, Cape comics with here, with heavy continuity. And there's like guides of like, what are accessible starting points and there's podcasts for it, et cetera. But, like, for whatever reason, I mean, when you or I, when anyone who's not a baby boomer, you know, began to read Marvel mm-hmm. comics, we, we were beginning in media race, you know. I mean, I, like, when I, the first issue of Spider-Man I read, I, I didn't, I had to figure out what a spider doppelganger was. That was my first, <laughs> it, it, that was the first time I was aware of the word doppelganger. And um, so I hadn't read, I hadn't read any Herman Hesse yet. I was a child, you know. And, um, yeah. you know, but we figured it out. So it's interesting that, like, I, 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 I think a lot of us comic books are always trying to have to remove that work from our, so our peers don't get daunted. But I think, you know, that the, like, those layers are part of the appeal that Marvel had in the first place, and they were something that we all got sucked into in the first place as well. I don't know if it's a personality-type question or, or what, but... Um, yeah, yeah, know. I've... I've, I've... I spent a lot of time um, thinking about that when I was working on the book. And, um, you know, I, I think I was somebody who was always uh, sort of, I guess, romantic about, you know, the, the continuity that had, that had come before. Um, but, uh, you know, ultimately I, I just realized, you know, nobody in their right mind can keep track of it all. You know, it's, um, you know, and, and I think even people not in their right minds, uh, have probably lost track of, of it, but um, I, I think, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's hard because you, you don't want to, you don't want to see things 
quote unquote rebooted, uh, you know, every two years, but at the same time, um, it's, it's, it's really, it's really tough to, to try to wade through, um, 50, uh, year, 55 years of, of continuity. Yeah. That was something I was thinking about because, um, you know, uh, in addition to, to your work, uh, which got me started doing, uh, my own stuff, uh, I read a lot of, um, sort of comics business history done by, uh, Colin Space Twinks, who writes about this sort of modern phenomenon of what he calls the sort of the hype cycle, where comics get get rebooted. You know, in, in recent years, where comics get rebooted with a new issue, one to you know goose the numbers, and then you know numbers quickly decline, and then all of a sudden they reboot again. And it's sort of an interesting examination because I I, I noticed at one point in your book that like. Very similar things were happening in the in the um, like mid seventies when Marvel was sort of trend surfing. So it seems like mm-hmm. we're always going from feast to famine. It's either these sort of ridiculous continuity dives in which somebody has to keep track of, you know, where in physical space time is you know Peter Parker at any given moment across you know dozens and dozens of books versus you know this kind of weird sometimes they call it creeping timeline or just sort of like mayfly existence where you don't get any change that way either. You're constantly, you know, starting from, from scratch. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I think um, I, I started, I started really seeing uh, a lot of the connection between, you know, the way public publicly traded companies work and the way comic book narratives work um, because you've, you've really, you've got to be, um, you've got to be hyping it all the time. And uh, it's all about the quick return. And, and these, you know, these companies are, are answerable to stockholders. And so there's, you know, when, when you, when you see the, you know, the, the rebooting, trying to, trying to game the system and, and trying to get, you know, sales juiced, um, you know, every couple of months. Uh, and there's, and there's not really any regard for the long-term effects. Um, and, you know, I, I think, I think that that's not unrelated to um, just kind of the way unfettered capitalism works with, you know, um, there's 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 really uh, an emphasis on getting you know getting as much as you can out of something before walking away from it. Um, if that doesn't sound too far out there. Yeah, I, I guess so. Speaking of capitalism and being also ridiculously on brand for our show, one of the things we always talk about are you know unions in the entertainment industry and unions and in, in the lack of a union in the comics industry. One of the things I was thinking about putting this together was, you know, when you look at the periods of time in which Writers Guild, being the writer for the union for screenwriters and TV writers, I used to work there, disclosure, uh, was really growing in the 20th century, that there was a certain amount of overlap between that time period and the growth of the comics industry. But then you also have these periodic uh, comic industry crises, like in the 50s, it's like, you know, you had were home and all of that stuff and I, I it's it's interesting that like 
you know, you have creators forming unions and like fighting so they can have things like residuals and winning them and all these other entertainment industries during the period of time in which it was easier to grow a union in the U.S. than it has been at any other points in time. And yet nothing seems to have happened like that at all until the 70s, which is actually not as hospitable a period for union organizing as some, although better than today. Um, I don't know. If, if you, do you think that like the specifics of the comics scares made it less likely that people would try to organize a union back during the silver age and, and before I don't, or, or like it sort of never came to come into people's minds and yet it was happening all over the entertainment industry in New York and LA. Yeah, that's, you know, I, I think that's one of the, one of the um, places where the lack of comics business um, journalism uh, is, is, is really a, a problem because I feel like we should know more about, in the you know, in the late sixties, there were, there were some people who tried to organize at DC comics and they got fired. And uh, ah. Arnold, I know Arnold Drake was, was one of these people and I, I I'm, I'm just blanking on, on who some of the others were, but um, you know, it's, it's, it's something that you have to really, really dig to find out. And even then when you do, there's, there's not much more that's documented about it. Um, but I think, I think that was sort of, you know, 1968 or whenever that, that was, I, I think that probably scared, scared people for a little while. And then by the late seventies, I mean, there were a bunch of factors, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure including, um, you know, the legislation of, of the Copyright Act. But um, I, I, I think, you know, people were probably pretty gun-shy for a while after the firings. Um, and, and certainly, you know, if you go back and you you look at, at, at the attempts to organize in 1978, um, there were there were a lot of a lot of creators who wanted no part of it. Um, there was a, an issue of the comics journal that included, uh, uh, I guess, responses or commentary from a, a slew of, of comics professionals. And uh, it's, it's really interesting to, you know, to see what the various um, you know, artists and writers have to say. Hmm. Because the thing that ended up happening is so interesting is like rather than like organizing a union, actually in some ways what they did was more radical, although more exclusionary, which is they up and moved to image, essentially starting an autonomous workers collective, <laughs> but one who was very limited who could participate. Yeah, you know, I had um, I wanted to write something uh, a couple years ago about. Um, uh, you know, Marvel. Marvel was kind of going around and um, giving creators money in order to just, you know, make sure all the paperwork was in order so they could use certain characters in the movies. And I wanted to write an article about that. And one of one of the things that I wanted to address was was you know why there why is there no union and. Uh, I still don't really understand. There was a, um, a lawyer who has, you know, a number of, of clients 
uh, you know, successful comic creators who, who gave me an explanation that, that um, I, I can't exactly remember the, the way he explained it, but it, it didn't really make sense to me. And I, I sort of chalked it up to, um, uh, you know, my just not being able to wrap my head around it. But uh, I, would, I, would love, I would love to get an explanation that makes sense to me. I mean, I would love it, to take a look at that just as someone who comes from an, um, an organizing background for, like, the entertainment industry stuff because there's, like, it, there's nothing particularly special about comics in some ways, but to the extent that people insisted it wasn't a real business for a long time in the beginning of the business, uh, I wonder if that sort of set the precedence to make it not happen back during, you know, the beginning of the, the genre, I mean, the beginning of the medium. Yeah, yeah, and, and uh, it now seems like a you know a good time for um, you know, uh, people to. I, I was going to say rise up, but that sounded more like a call to action that I meant. Um, <laughs> Come together and discuss, and discuss their shared working <laughs> challenges. Step forward, yeah. Yeah, interestingly enough, and we uh, with someone else who tried to do a survey, of creators uh, pay over this past year, getting that information out of creators is damn near impossible. Like, for some reason, they, a lot of them are very uh, tight-lipped, and I think it's part of it, they're just afraid of rocking the boat is, uh, is going to screw over their, uh, their hiring down the road, because uh, the, the little feedback that I got from folks was, oh, someone will figure out I answered this, and now I get hired. Uh, so there's a paranoia, mm-hmm. I think, that, that is throughout the industry that probably explains a lot of why there's no union in for union. Yeah. I, I mean, that, that could be in just maybe a holdover from, you know, decades past. Um, uh, yeah. It's, it's, it, you know, it's, but it's hard to say, I, I mean, as a, as a freelance writer, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really hard to, find out what various publications are, are, plan, are paying, uh, you know, for, for writers. Um, there's, you know, there's been, uh, you know, some, some efforts to, to sort of share that stuff, but it's, it's, uh, you know, it's not people going on record. It's, it's all sort of, uh, anonymously crowdsourced. Um, and so yeah, it was I, I, I understand how that happens. Yeah. I mean, it was amazing as it was anonymous. There you, I mean, there would have been no way to really have figured out who was who. People still didn't want to do it. They still thought the info oh, was going to really? get there. Yeah. And I was, I was like, fill out a Google Doc. You just fill out the info. There was no identifying info at all. We didn't want to know what issues worked on. It was literally like, who's the publisher? What did you get paid? How much did you do? And some other questions. And still everyone was like paranoid. Hey, someone's going to two and two together. And I'm like, do you understand what an aggregate is like this is all going to be an aggregate there's no way to figure out individual from aggregate info but yeah well i i, I rant for I mean, another time <laughs> marvel marvel has done a, a a really good job of of spooking people i think and i don't i don't mean that as an accusation of of you know something i'm being coy about i just um i i i mean you know the the culture of marvel seems seems uh you know pretty paranoid. Were there you find other it hard... aspects of that that sounds Yeah, I was about to ask. Paranoid? Yeah. yeah. Did you find I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't hear follow up? Name, did, but... Well, did you find it hard to get like 
info from people and people to like actual with you for this book or was that did that paranoia extend to your research well i i uh i, I don't know that uh i mean there there are, you know my 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 book really kind of uh kind of starts starts to wrap up around maybe 2002 and uh you know, and, and, and part of that was, was just, uh, I couldn't, I couldn't bear to repeat the story, you know, running one more cycle. <laughs> and, and I don't know that, you know, I, I felt like I would just really lose people because if it was the rise and the fall and the rise and the fall and the rise and fall. But, um, uh, you know, part of, part of the reason that it, it feels so truncated probably at the end is also, uh, that, you know, there, there weren't many people that were, you know, we're going to happily just talk to me. Um, and I, I found that it was, you know, it was the people who were out of the business who were, you know, just willing to be candid and frank with me. Mm. So um, speaking of the old days and sort of things not changing that much, uh, I had a question, which is one of the sort of more recent phenomena that in regard to Marvel that I find very interesting is this sort of habit of asserting and then backing away from sort of social relevance and social commentary, whether it's something like uh, Marvel's Civil War and Civil War II or, uh, you know, Secret Invasion um, or, sorry, sorry, Secret Empire, um, you know, and relevance to, to recent politics. And I was wondering, you know, in, in your discussion in your book about sort of Marvel's uneasy attitude towards uh, Vietnam and campus protests, you know, do you see a sort of uh, uh, a constant trend or were there sort of changes along the way? Uh, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, I think, um, you know, for, for whatever reason, it, it seemed like, you know, say 19, 19- 80 to 1995, uh, you know, there, it wasn't, it, there, it didn't even seem like anyone was really trying to kick through that um, and, 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 and tell really, um, you know, politically risky stories. Um, uh, I think, you know, when it, I mean, the, the just speaking in terms of, of Marvel, um, because I, I wouldn't be able to talk to, you know, 21st century DC content. Um, but in, in terms of, of Marvel, I think, you know, probably the risk it all, um, you know, roll the, roll the dice attitude of Bill Jemis, you know, probably opened that up um, a bit, uh, you know, for all, I mean, you know, Bill Jemis's, uh, uh, you know, uh, I want to say stewardship is, you know, is a complicated, a complicated thing. Um, but I think, I, I think there was so much great stuff in the, the very beginning of the two thousands. Um, and I think, you know, I, I, I think that that has, has kind of, kind of dissipated. I mean, you know, part of it was just a willingness to offend people. And so there's just awful, awful stuff from that era. Um, I mean, it, the, you know, the Marvel 
miniseries and mm-hmm. um, and the, I mean the, the Runaways. Uh, it was it Runaways or Thunderbolts maybe covers um, that were that were pretty disgusting. But um, uh, I, I think I think it sort of goes a little bit hand in hand that that um, you know Marvel was just you know taking a lot of chances. Mm. One of the uh, things that I, I think you, you hit on a little bit that I just have to, I just keep thinking about a contemporary parallel is, you know, the, you mentioned a bit about like there was the politics of the clone saga and how, how did that sort of st- storyline get away from everyone so hard and then the publisher's inability to sort of reel it back. And I look at that story and I think about Secret Empire, frankly, as a sort of a, a contemporary but with actual social implications beyond just that literature uh, parallel to it. Like I, you know, you have these different periods of editorial control and how different people run different offices. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, I, you, I, I can't imagine some of these stories run wild happening under certain parts and times of Marvel leadership yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, uh, I mean, really, the the clone stuff was what is that about 1994? Yes. Yeah, so uh, although, I guess, yeah. um, you know, that was sort of in the, you know, I, that that was in, in a in a phase where editorial was being very closely policed, and uh, you know, the numbers were under a lot of scrutiny, whereas you know, in the early 2000s, they had they had a lot less to lose, um, and I think, you know, the the, um, the 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 kind of iron grip of uh, you know editorial as um, uh, determiner. Uh, I I, th- I think that that's something that just kind of goes along with Marvel's times of success. Um, and it's, you know, I mean, the, the classic, the classic, uh, you know, pop culture trend of, you know, when, when you have nothing to lose and you, um, you know, you're, you're taking chances, you know, by, you know, the, the, you know, post easy rider era of, of Hollywood, (laughs) um, you know, you're, you're going to get some more interesting stuff. And then once, uh, it, you know, becomes, formulas for a calculator uh it's just uh you know people aren't really uh prioritizing the story over everything else who are some of the people who uh, who you really uncovered when you were writing this that are just not names that fans are aware of that really made big contributions to to marvel yeah um I guess you know the the first thing that comes to mind is just some of the some of the the business people, um, and maybe the you know and, and sometimes it's just the people who who gave me good interviews, and so I feel like they contributed a lot to Marvel history. Um, but I think I, I you know I, I think I you to be honest with you I don't know that I even have a good idea in 2017 who the historical, uh, you know, who's in the canon, basically. Um, I don't know how 
how much people know about, say, Steve, Steve Englehart. Um, is he mm-hmm. so when people are well versed in? If, if you're a big fan of Captain America, like myself, yeah, you know, you know Steve Englehart. But I bet the kids don't know. I don't know about the kids these days. I don't know. I, I'd I say know the kids probably don't know. With Flo, with Flo, you know, and her contribution. I just love that she like got to appear in things in the first place. But like, you know, the administrative staff, like that's just interesting to me as well. But yeah, um, and uh, I spoke to uh, Robin Green, who was, um, uh, I think she was Stan's secretary around 1969, and she's the one who wrote the amazing Rolling Stone um, article um, in the early 70s, uh, the issue that has the Hulk on the cover. Um, and she, you know, went on to be one of the producers of The Sopranos. Uh, so I was, I, I felt, oh, I felt cool. very, um, very lucky to, <laughs> to get her on the phone, you know, um, uh, to talk, to talk about, you know, her, her time, you know, toiling away at Marvel. Um, but uh, if, if, I don't know if, if you've all read that that Rolling Stone article, um, but it's it's really tremendous, and it's one of those things that if you're you're working to write about something, and you, then you you come across a, a piece of that caliber, you, you kind of get a little bit of a shudder, like what what am I up against here? Uh, it's it, there's a there's a really tremendous extended uh, visit at Jim Steranko's house um, that's. That's just uh, perfect. Well, that's certainly a personality and a character. Um, <laughs> wow. Oh, actually, you know, that brings me to another question. Like, when you think about the people who kind of came in and really changed art, Marvel artistically or the industry artistically, period, obviously Steranko comes to mind. But I also was just trying to think, like, before him, you know, you, you, when you're talking about, like, really, like, Silver Age Marvel – you think about like there's teams there's like Jack and Stan, Stan and Ditko, and Stan and Romita, and like when did it begin to pivot to like Stan not being in everything, and when did it start to bring in younger generations of artists, and like what was that process of bringing in a younger generation of artists back in the '60s? Like, what, cause it sometimes sort of feels like it was just, and then Sir Jim Steranko got hired, but I, I, I must be missing something here. Yeah, you know, I think Starenko and Neil Adams were were kind of these uh, slightly um, out of step, uh, you know, intergeneration guys uh, that that were were kind of the the only big names that came around until the early '70s. Um, at, at which point, a lot of the Silver Silver Age fans had, had kind of uh, you know lined up to work at Marvel. Um, I think, I think Starenko and Adams were, I think, I think they were probably born in the late thirties or so. I'm going to guess, um, maybe early forties. Um, you know, and, and I think, I, I think they were really, uh, just, you know, kind of outliers. Um, you know, it, it skipped over, um, a certain, certain age of, of, of people because, you know, who was, who was, who was, you know, growing up in 1959 and 1960 wanting to, you know, break into comic books. It it was just not, (laughs) there was nothing attractive about that. That's a very good point. 
Yeah. And I think, um, you know, so I, th- I think I think through fandom, a lot of people came in in the early 70s and, you know, and Roy Thomas certainly uh, was a, a conduit for that. Um, and, and so, you know, that's that's a whole, um, uh, you know, a, a whole new uh, whole new whole new generation just kind of uh, hitting the stage um, and, you know the 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 baby boomers are you know like they're they still kind of loom over comic books your research um looking up through like all the decades is there anything that stood out to you that that really surprised you uh, from all you know everything that you looked at yeah well i think one of the things that really floored me was uh you know, Stan Lee, um, in the, in the early seventies, uh, there was a very brief period of time where he was completely frank about the business and he was disillusioned. And, uh, I, I have a, a little excerpt of, of a speech he gave at a, a um, professional cartoonist event, um, but I, I think I think there's quite a bit more that didn't go in the book. Uh, but you know, essentially, he's he's saying, you know, if somebody came up to me and told me they wanted to go into comic books, I would say, you know, don't. Should you should go into movies or something that you know where you actually like get a piece of the money. Um, and then very very shortly after that he took a sabbatical and he, he kind of never came back to writing full time after that. Um, but that was, you know, that was a, a, a notion that Stan Lee had at some point that I never, I never knew existed. Um, and oh. it's, I mean, I still feel like, uh, uh, you know, that people haven't, haven't really seized, seized on, on, you know, that, um, uh, that uh, epiphanic moment that Stanley had. Speaking of mm. Stanley and and writing, um, a, a frequent conversation that we have is how much we love the Tumblr Kirby without words, which uh, has done some art uh, by Kate Willard, who's amazing. It's just done some art analysis sort of removing Stan's dialogue from the original Kirby art from some of the Silver Age comics and really revealing um, often a far more feminist uh, and frequently more interesting story that seems to be at odds with the language that was written on it. And we know in the Marvel method, you know, it's unavoidable that whoever is the actual like, writer of dialogue because they're coming in after the art is done is is going to be possibly putting in some stuff that's not in agreement with the Im- with the images once you have you know more time to sit and look at it. But I, I think we have this conversation on Twitter. But I, I want to have this conversation with like the listeners. Like you know, I mean, what are your thoughts about the role that Sam had in interpreting Kirby's stories in ways that seem to consistently downplay Sue and Jean, um, who are actually just being badasses if you look at the art itself. And they were always getting undermined by the professor or Reed when you actually look at the dialogue. I mean, do you think that this is a, that she's done a decent job of trying to uncover what those narratives might have been? 
You know, I, I've got to be honest. I, I haven't had this conversation with anyone, and I. Oh my god! I, so I, I have to uh, go go back and and look at that. I didn't even know that she had that Tumblr. Um, oh. Or maybe maybe I saw it fleetingly, uh, you know, a year ago, and 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 need to revisit it. Um, but uh, I I'm going to make a point to to look at it. Oh, sorry uh, about that. Yeah. It could have been we had yeah. that conversation. Sorry. Yeah, it could have yeah, been I, it could have just been a, you know, a a, a fast uh retweet of something that I uh that I forgot after after months. I, I but I don't I don't think that I've seen that. Okay. So, sorry about that. Um well, I definitely think that, you know, I for like a certain kind of comics reader like we're, we we are very aware of how much creative work was done by Jack Kirby in particular, but also in general by artists as storytellers because of the way the Marvel method was structured. Um, and uh, so I don't know, like, do you have a sense from the research that you were doing, like that the folks feel like people were generally sort of interpreting their art in dialogue in ways that were true to what they were trying to communicate or were people divorced enough from the results of the process to not really feel like it mattered anyway? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, other than, I mean, I guess Jack Kirby's his own, his own special case. Um, But, but I think for the most part, um, you know, I wasn't really aware of too many, too much tension between writers and artists, um, you know, that I spoke to, um, uh, you know, I guess, you know, especially once, you know, probably, probably breaking down the credits uh, more specifically probably helped to alleviate you know, that tension. I mean, there's, there's obviously there's like John Byrne and Chris Claremont. Um, uh, <laughs> I guess, I, I guess that's, that's a big one. Um, and and that also i guess comes down to like um you know it's it, there's there's something that's so uh so ironic to me about all of all of these guys you know trying to like wrest control of gene gray um you know these 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 creators always seem to be you know fighting over gene gray um uh you know, I mean, I guess, I guess also Chris Claremont is, you know, he seems to really, uh, you know, understandably become very proprietary about, about the characters that he, you know, that he writes. Um, uh, but going, um, I've, I've, I, I've lost, I've lost what I was, what I was going to say. Sorry about that. I like the idea of, of everyone fighting over Gene Gray. There's, I think you could do something really fascinatingly meta about that. <laughs> well, and Carol Danvers, that's the other, uh, you know, that's, uh, oh. that's the other, you know, really contentious uh, uh, battle of, I guess, you know, Chris Claremont in the early eighties. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Did you find when you were um, doing interviews, like, that you developed a different appreciation of 
some of the eras of Marvel that you might not have had as much interest in before you began to do the research for the book? I think I think that my interest in um, mid seventies Marvel, uh, you know, which was already there, I think I think that is probably what uh, uh, you know got boosted the most. Um, and I guess that's what uh, you know that's why I mentioned Steve Englehart. And I think mm-hmm. you know Steve Gerber is. I, I think Steve Gerber has actually become a bigger name in you know the time since uh, I was working on the book. I think you know his his cult following, I think has, has probably grown. Um, but you know, there was, there was, uh, a lot of Steve Gerber stuff that I, I had never read. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, when it's, when it's, when it's great, it's, it's really, you know, peerless. Yeah. What is it about that, about that work that you think is so, is so valuable? I think, um, well, you know, I mean, Steve Gerber was was also kind of, um, you know, he was he was tackling a lot of social stuff and coming at it really like sideways, and um, you know, it's stuff that is just it's it's absurd, um, but there's a there's a it's often enough um, it it it's often enough. Uh, just like a very sharp satire that, that, you know, you, you, you kind of have to go along with the faith that the absurd stuff is, is going to kind of pan out at the end, or it's, you know, it's all part of a, a vision that's going to communicate uh, something to you rather than just be absurd for its own, its own sake. Um, uh, I mean, one of, one of, one of the most uh, fascinating Steve Gerber stories to me is uh, the Mandrill and Necra saga. Um, I don't know if any of you are familiar with that, but um, you know, it's, it's really, um, you know, it's, it's about a, a, an albino um, raised by a black family and a, a child. Um, I want to say raised by um I was going to say white supremacist. It's something that's that's just like so far out there, and, and you you spend the first like twenty pages of it just trying to figure out what you should be offended by, but you can't quite <laughs> put your finger on it. And I I think I think you know that kind of story is is really going to always in, intrigue me um, because um, you know I have like a general awareness that Steve Gerber had, I know that he had progressive values in general. And so I'm already giving him the benefit of the doubt a little bit, but then that's being challenged. And, um, you know, but I'm, but I'm, I'm sort of, I'm coming at it in, in kind of good faith and, and, uh, uh, you know, people just like, uh, uh, they they earn their their goodwill as storytellers, and you know you're you're willing to to go a little outside of your your comfort zone, um, you know, with their stories once once they've done that. It sounded like a Chappelle skit is exactly what you're just. Describing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Real. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's 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 an interesting comparison. Um, uh, yeah, I've I've certainly been offended by a lot of Dave Chappelle stuff, <laughs> um, um, and I, I feel I, I I feel terrible that I I'll have to um, I'll have to email with you guys later and 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 uh, and direct you to you know I really butchered the the origin story of of Necra and Mandrill. Um, but uh, it's it's uh, it crosses over between a couple different comic books, and you can't figure out why are they, you know, why are they spending all these issues on on this shaggy dog tail that makes you know just what what is what is the point that he's trying to make here, and why and why is this you know um, I, what which parts are supposed to be funny and and, and which aren't. Um, it's actually something mm-hmm. that I, I think it would be. I mean, that's the kind of thing that I think Marvel should just, you know, um, you know, reprint into a really short charge, you know, six bucks for. Uh, but that's not going to happen. <laughs> well, I mean, I would just say my observation is generally when, like, there are, are white men who have what one would presume to be good politics and they end up creating things that don't seem to reflect that. It's because they're not really capable of expressing the positions of the people who they purport to be representing in their work because they don't live that life. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's frequently, it's frequently because it's like, yeah, you don't, this is not actually stuff that you faced or ever existed. And that's why this particular take you've given does not make any sense to us. Um, yeah. So uh, I had a, a question um, sort of following from Stan Lee's stepping away. One of the things that, you know, especially history always changes the way that we view these things. One of the things I thought was fascinating is how early Stan Lee had his eye on Hollywood versus how relatively late the sort of actual breakthrough for Marvel uh, in Hollywood was, you know, in terms of like, you know, setting up Marvel Studios and actually now becoming this, you know, cultural juggernaut that, you know, is going to go on forever pretty much. Uh, and one of the things that it, it sort of had me wondering is, has this changed the industry in that, you know, are we still dealing with comics as an industry of cyclical downturns? Uh, or has it to some extent become like an IP farm where, you know, giant mega corporations will accept a lost leader in exchange for, you know, every so often getting intellectual property that's going to kick out, you know, billions each year in movie sales. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's uh, that's a question I knew. I wish I knew the answer to. Um, I, I think um, I I I I kind of feel like uh, Marvel is too big to fail. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I I think that you know in 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 2017, I I think you know barring something crazy happening, I mean, I think we're stuck with the culture we've got. the pop culture we've got. Ah, okay. Um, um, 
Yeah, I mean, sorry, I got sort of sidetracked by the end of your question as opposed to the, you know, the Stanley oh, part well, of the, it. The start of my question was, I was just sort of curious about, like, do you think it was this sort of thing where Stanley was sort of, you know, ironically ahead of his time, but it just, you know, it wasn't there yet for Marvel? Or is there sort of, you know, this what-if, uh, you know, timeline that could have been where, the same sort of, you know, the, the Donner Superman movies or the Tim Burton Batman movies could have been Marvel, too, that that could have been their world. Yeah, I, you know, I just, I probably spent as much time kind of wrestling with that question as anything else in the book. Um, you know, I, you know, I, I guess the the main thing that kept Marvel from, you know, kind of answering the success of Batman in the early '90s was just they didn't they didn't have a character that of of that profile that went back, you know, generationally as far. Um, and I think, you know, I mean, Spider Spider Man was never going to be, you know, Captain America. Um, in terms of, you know, appealing to, like, you know, greatest generation um, consumers. Um, I guess, uh, yeah, there's, there's there's nowhere that you can really go back and say this is where, you know, Stanley maybe should have done something different, or you know, or I, I think maybe if you go up to the to the top, you know, certainly if, if Cadence Industries had thrown more money um, and Marvel Studios had, uh, you know, not just become a, a Saturday morning cartoon farm, um, you know, they, they might have been able to make something in the, in the early 80s. Uh, you've, but, you know, you've also got the, um, you know, just, just the... Um, the, the the challenges of of technology at at the time and and trying to depict you know just uh, fantasy stuff um, you know in the, in the wake of Superman there were there were all of these things like Flash Gordon that were yeah. just so ridiculous and and you know it was kind of it was kind of like the industry and the and the culture uh, you know just gave comic books a shot to follow up on Superman and it, and it just didn't, you know, it just didn't happen. Um, uh, you know, of, of course it's, you know, the, the, there's the irony that star Wars had, you know, had owed so much to Jack Kirby. Um, but, uh, but in terms of people dressed up in costumes, um, I still don't really understand how it works for people. Uh, you know, I think, um, uh, most of the Marvel Netflix shows, I, I think look kind of ridiculous. Um, I mean, that's sort of a minority opinion, but, uh, I, I, th- I think that there's, there's just, there's something, um, maybe it's just uncanny Valley about seeing people dressed up in spandex, um, you know, it just, it, I, I would rather see it, in, you know, maybe done with a rotoscope or animated in some way. Um, 
it's hard for me to take um, a lot of superheroes seriously on screen. I hear you. I can. I wish that they'd had the budget to like do a real full animation style movies in that period. You know, back when they were yeah. doing style animation, we could have had such gorgeous stuff. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, Bakshi or, you know, one of the breakaway Disney folks did a Marvel movie. I think yeah. we could have had something really interesting. Or you know, think about think about if uh, I mean, as long as Disney was going to swallow Marvel anyway, think about what like a 1948 <laughs> yeah. Captain America movie from Walt Disney would look like. You know. Oh my God. Um, Well, I want to get back a little bit to, like, the marketing at Marvel. Um, and you have really Marvel being very deliberate in its fan community cultivation with, like, the, you know, the Mary Marvel, sorry, uh, marching, making up mm-hmm. theme songs and the whole, like, culture with no prize. Like, we're they, they kind of invented the modern notion of a fan community, is that fair enough? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, uh, I mean, certainly, if, yeah, if you qualify with with modern, uh, there's there's really no doubt about it. Uh, um, you know, there was I guess there was a little bit of that in the '40s, people like mailing in for decoder rings of you know, various types. But um, yeah, it was it, it was. Uh, even even into you know the the 80s when i was when i was you know a kid reading comics it was it was like um yeah it was it was like a a, a place where you kind of read letters from your buddies you know it was um uh it was it was one of one of the things to kind of connect you to an outside world before the internet um and i think um yeah it's it's it, you know it's um it's easy to be i guess cynical about the uh, um, the marketing aspect of it uh but i i think i think you know i think there was just something that was uh a nice safe place for a lot of people. Was that sort of development that was Stan's like marketing notions basically, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was, I mean, I think it was, you know, it was borrowed from, you know, stuff in his childhood, but he happened to be. So like the Mickey Mouse club, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, he's, there's something specific that he has alluded to that I uh, had never heard of before, and I can't remember what it was. But yeah, there was, I mean, there were you know a number of of fan clubs, but they weren't um, they weren't fan clubs that you know talked about how happy everyone who worked there was. I'm so so fascinated by this invention of the bullpen as an office space that kids would want to go and work at, which is completely true, and that like we somehow believed like was a place you could go and, and have a job somehow magically and yeah like as as a marketing tool and i'm sure that that mentality is part of why you had a hard time union organizing when generation had been raised on the metaphor 
that Marvel as a family comes and starts to work for Marvel and their family is like actually not paying them fairly for their IP. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. It, it's mm-hmm. like, well, it's my family. I mean, because that is, because I would say, like, literally, like, the lines that companies use to get workers not to form unions is like, our business, we really think of it as a family. Right. Right. And I think, um, I mean, I think that, I mean, that's just, you know, one, one of the really unique things about Marvel is, is that it's been able to cultivate a loyalty to, you know, not just characters, but to a company um, from from mm-hmm. fandom, um, you know, which is uh, impressive and and dangerous. You know, um, I think uh, you know, I I I feel good. For, of I personally um, got out of um, my. Uh, um, uh, unconditional love for Marvel comics. I feel like I, you know, I, I had that for a time and, um, and it was a wonderful, it was a wonderful thing. And I still appreciate a lot about, um, uh, I, I more than appreciate. I still, I still love a lot of the creations. Um, uh, but, uh, when you, when you've got people, uh, that are that are have convinced themselves that uh that this company is is more important you know than the flesh and blood people who work there um you know that's that's awful mhm i agree that's what and i guess before we close out i i'm sorry Brett, you might have some additional questions too is my and most people's personal hero, Jack Kirby, as perfect and flawless as we believe him to be, and truly, be, like because that's the one thing I don't want to lose. It's the one, the one, the one belief I don't want to. Yeah, I mean, I don't have any, I don't have any, uh, any dirt on Jack Kirby that that should you know, keep you up or anything. Um, you know, I think, I think there's. Um, I I feel like there's there's this this tendency to make Jack Kirby a little cuddlier than I think is <laughs> is great. I mean I think that there's you know there's just there's something about people like Bob Marley and Stevie Wonder and Jack Kirby that have sort of been um completely defanged and um you know made to be almost um mascots in a way. Um, uh, you know, and, and, uh, but, but, you know, that, that, that said, I think, um, you know, I've pretty much only heard good things about Jack Kirby and, uh, you know, I, I think, I think it's, 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 it's him as, uh, as a, as a total, his, his total sainted, um, existence right now in the in the comics sphere and and actually has yeah there's there's this this martyred quality um Mm -hmm. that's that's romanticized a little bit more than um i'm you know i'm i'm comfortable with i think i think the like the phrase comics will break your heart is is um people people want to put that on a 
on a pin and wear it a little too much for my for my taste. Um, I, I, it's not something that I'm necessarily uh, able to articulate on the spot, but uh, um, yeah, I, I I love Jack Kirby's work and and uh, and I don't think anyone will take away <laughs> he was a decent man. For, Brett, uh, do you have any final of, questions? Yeah. I, so, you know, obviously Marvel's been for what, 75 years or so, a little bit longer um, at this point. You know, for all your research, you know, is there something that, you know, that you notice was kind of like the essence of Marvel that is kind of like true when they founded and true today? Or, you know, when you wrap stuff up like that, that that you would kind of define as Marvel? Um, well, do you mean like a specific um, era or a, or a specific comic or a sentiment? Uh, yeah, I'm thinking more like a sentiment, like something that's just, that, you, know, I, yeah, I'm, you know, I don't know if you've, if you've looked at Marvel, but like that you feel is like very unique to them that, you know, if you took away, it just wouldn't be the same company. Um, you know, I, I think I think it really is the um, you know what people always refer to now as, as the world building. Um, I you know I, I think it's the opposite of something specific, but but I think um, you know the the intricacy of Marvel is is probably what makes it uh, you know as special as as anything. Um, you know, there's a tendency to, you know, to really put, you know, to, to reduce Marvel and DC as, you know, about the, about the underdog and about, you know, the, the victor. Um, uh, but, you know, I mean, super, Superman had all of these like interesting psychoses uh, that, that people <laughs> don't really bring up. Um, and so, you know, there's, a, there's a little bit of, of, you know, it, it, it gets hard to, it gets hard to, uh, you know, to go along with Marvel as underdog as, you know, as time goes on, um, you know, even if, even if the characters have, you know, feet of clay, uh, the company is such a juggernaut. Um, but I think, I, I think that, uh, yeah, the, the, the way that the narrative uh, unfolds, I think is, is probably what, you know, seems to me, the really, the really great achievement. Cool. Well, thanks again for joining us. Just remind everybody, yeah. you got to go get the book, uh, Marvel, the untold story. And, uh, it is also available on audible. I have the sound. <laughs> well, thank you guys very much. It was great talking to you. And yeah, we appreciate find your work on the internet, um, like the, Thank you. From the, the, Tumblr, the Tumblr and the uh, and your other work online. Yep, it's uh, uh, I, I, I think seanhow.com dot uh, com hopefully has still working links to all that stuff. Great, and that's H O W E and Sean S E A N. Right. Do you have anything else coming up that we should be looking out for? Uh, 
no, I'm, I've been working on a book for a, a few years. It's not about comics, and uh, it's still a ways away. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I think that we got that from a few people. Of, uh, is there any chance that you do a similar book on one of the other publishers? <laughs> I do. I do get that question a lot. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, 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 every once in a while, I, I consider it, but, but I think. You know this the I don't know I don't know how I could tell um, a, you know a, a story that isn't a repeat of 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 the Marvel one um, uh, and and in just in terms of you know the comic book industry um, having certain you know um, necessary uh, beats and I, I think there would there would also just there would be there would be so many recent DC comics to to have to be aware of <laughs> you know I just, <laughs> maybe maybe if maybe if it was about you know I think you know DC DC in the 80s uh, you know maybe maybe that would that would work um, but that that's also DC. pretty at this point that's pretty well tread ground too um, yeah. you know a lot of people have have really taken care of that. Go go with the DC and the the mobsters and their little mob ties that everyone seems to forget about. <laughs> so like the great piece of comic novels that everyone seems to be shocked. <laughs> yeah. So appreciate you ha- you know coming on board and and um, us. It's uh, been very interesting conversation. So m- much appreciated. Yeah, yeah, great talking to you guys. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. you. And Stephen. Well, before you go, uh, where can folks get you, uh, you know, connect with you and all, all the awesome stuff that you're doing? Uh, so uh, you can find my writings uh, on comic books at uh, Graphic Policy and also at uh, RaceForTheIronThrone.tumblr.com. Uh, as as was previously mentioned, uh, if you're into, you know, Song of Ice and Fire and the intersection between history and pop culture more broadly, uh, you can find me at racefortheironthrone.wordpress.com and I'm also on Twitter at Stephen Atwell. Excellent. Yes, if if you are into Game of Thrones, uh, all that stuff, like go check out his writing. It's awesome and yeah, I, I, I wish I was more into Thank it. Thank you so very I much. Could appre- I can appreciate it. <laughs> so, okay, good night, uh, y'all. Yeah, always great having you. Much appreciated. And Alana, last but not least, where can folks find you? on Twitter all the time, E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. And um, we will be back next week. Yay. Although I don't know if we've settled on our topic, but I do want to reassure our listeners that we will indeed be covering Runaways and also... Yep. Punisher, Punisher. Yeah, um, I still haven't watched it, so I can't point, can't say anything. <laughs> yeah, still need to watch it. At some point, at some point, yeah. we'll be discussing both of these. I assure you. Uh, although, ironically, we have not discussed whether or not we'd actually be covering Charlie. <laughs> um, so, I guess if this, maybe we'll yeah. figure that out. But um, you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, Maybe we'll do like an all live action comics on screen, big and small episode or something. 
that that could I work. Know. I know. I, I hopefully, I hopefully, I'll have a lot more to say about runaways and possibly a lot more to fret over about Punisher than I might about the Justice League movie. But yeah, there we go. Yeah, um, I think my one my sentence would be is I feel bad, and then we can move on. <laughs> I actually haven't seen no. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen oh. Justice League. Well, cool. Well, they're they're about to break six hundred million. So go go be the one that puts them over six hundred million. They might I, be popular at that DC point. Movie, no, the only DC movie I've seen is Wonder Woman. So yeah. that's yeah. just you actually, won't like although it. Although I will tell you that Black Lightning sounds like it's going to be amazing. So hopefully we'll be able to cover Black Lightning on the show too. I'm hoping. Um, yeah, that's actually that would be a really good show. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, I'll hit you up. We'll we'll discuss off about Black Lightning. I actually. It's a good brainstorm, and we can we should do something else with that. Um, not just the TV show, but something else. Yes, that that is going to be very. I think that's out in January, I believe. So we'll we'll, we'll circle back and uh, make that happen. Um, yeah. So as always, thank you for listening. If you're into the Marvel and the comic books, check us out every single day at graphicpolicy.com. Of course, we're on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Tumblr, all at Graphic Policy, keeping it nice and. If you liked this episode, you can catch it on demand on iTunes and Stitcher. Please go and like five star it, rate it really high, say how much you like it, and then turn it around. And then it'll be on our site, graphicpolicy.com, tomorrow, as well as SoundCloud, also at Graphic Policy. Nice and consistent. So, as always, thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm Brett. I'm Ilana. Keep it geeky.